Hi everybody, welcome to Wrong Term Memory, it's me, Jack. And it's me, Colin. Uh, and we're going back to something we've not done for a while, Jack, which I've very much been looking forward to us doing, which is going back some, to some some true crime and some serial killing, which, because we're a pair of oddballs, we both very much enjoy. Oh, that's it, yeah. Quick apology, because I don't think we released it in last week, did we? It was just mad busy, you know. Life catches up with you sometimes, like, I, I need to move house. Uh, my landlord's selling these so like all that shit's going on just now so like real life gets in the road sometimes so we never released last week but for patrons you'll be getting this monday everybody else thursday we'll get a couple of bonuses next week and we need to announce for patrons we're doing our live stream that we've been promising for a while on the 22nd of april uh friday night we're going to do a live stream We'll have a wee chat beforehand, we're going to do a wee show and then we'll get a wee Q&A and if four or five people turn up, that that that's fine for me, man. As long as a few of you turn up and it's not a fucking complete disaster, it's not me and you just sit and talk like it is now, yeah. um, but I'm sure a few people will turn up, so that's the 22nd of April, man, so I'm looking forward to that, what about yourself? Uh, yeah, it'll be good. Um, it's, a, it's a Friday night, people might be doing stuff, but if you're not, come and join us, bring a couple of beers. Well, don't bring them because you're at home already, but have a beer. I'll probably have a beer and uh, we'll just shoot the shit and hopefully have a bit of a chat and um, see how it goes. It might just be you and me, Jack. It could it be might, that. And, and do you know what? In one sense, that would be good because then we know that we don't need to fucking do it again because nobody's interested and people yeah. just want to pay us for a supremely brilliant content and that's fine and if you want to keep doing it that's brilliant but if a few of you turn up we might do it in a couple of months as well once we hit 50 because we'll get there soon enough I'm pretty sure we got to 30 quickly enough so yeah it's got to be the next milestone for sure um, but listen if nobody turns up we'll just chat record it and that's a podcast done so it's all <laughs> exactly. good either either way is good so, so either way is all good by me true crime mate true crime and like, I sent you a couple of like options basically for today and it was Dennis Nielsen who everybody knows I'd imagine uh, I think was it David Tennant starred as him in a recent ITV he, thing he did he was very good yes uh, John Wayne Gacy uh, Pogo the Clown I sent you him but everybody's heard of him I was really surprised that you hadn't heard of Dennis Rader who is BTK yeah so that this is why I picked this one because it's just one that doesn't jump out for me. It's not one that I know anything about, really. If you, if I saw that name written down somewhere, I probably would know that it's a true crime thing, but I couldn't tell you the first thing about him, so you've very kindly done all the research for this pod, and I've read through it, and now I know a little bit about it, but yeah, I'm going to be kind of learning as we go along as well. Uh, you've watched a documentary as well recently, but this is the guy as well, though, haven't you? Yeah, I just watched it earlier on today. It wasn't a full-blown documentary. It was a 20-minute uh, YouTube video of biography type thing a million views or something like that it was um like i was kind of expecting like a a documentary with library footage and stuff like that but it wasn't quite like that it was basically just a guy speaking to camera who's got this big massive true crime podcast and he was just telling me personally speaking to me uh, about dennis Rader, the btk killer so We've got notes here, we're just going to battle through it and if anything pops into my mind that comes from that documentary, we'll, we'll sort of um, we'll jump in there. A little bit different from the sort of true crime stuff that we have uh, we've done in the past, basically, because we're not going to focus so much on like, the victims and, and, and this is the thing with true crime, I've spoken about this before, is 
nobody remembers the victims and it's, it is kind of sad but we're not going to be focusing so much on them we've got a bit about them but we're going to be focusing more on his early life his arrest his conviction his letters he was one of those like very unique serial killers in the sense that he was writing letters to the police and stuff like that and then we'll speak a little bit about his conviction and things like that so we will get there it's a little bit different from the stuff we've done before but yeah uh, Dennis Lynn so he's got a lady's middle name Dennis Lynn Raider uh, born 1945 uh, just before the end of the war American serial killer murdered 10 people um, in and around a place called Sedgwick in Wichita in Kansas between 1974 and 1999 known as the BTK Killer or BTK Strangler which stands for BT, which stands for BTK, obviously, <laughs> uh, Bing Torture Kill, uh, which described his MO basically. So he gave himself that name uh, through the the letters that he was writing to the policeman. Yeah, well, if your mum and dad call you Lynn and you're a guy, you are going to try and find a different uh, moniker, aren't you? Um, like you said earlier, he sent boastful letters describing the details of his killings to police and to the local news outlets uh, during the period of time in which the murders took place. After a long hiatus in the 90s, he resumed sending letters in 2004, and this was what led up to his 2005 arrest and a subsequent conviction. So what you've got here, Jack, is a guy who is quite arrogant, isn't he? He's wanting to be on and about it. He's kind of taunting people. He's given himself a name, and he's writing letters. Well, that was the thing. Like He really wanted to be unique in the, as a serial killer, but basically trying to be unique, he just kind of fell into the... The, the the psychopathy of a serial killer like he wasn't unique but he wanted to get a name and that's why he gave himself that sort of nickname through letters he was born this is 1945 uh, William was his dad and Dorothea was his mum born in Kansas then moved to Wichita um, and Wichita does that does that name ring a bell to you at all it does but I don't know why. Um, but it definitely does. But I just don't know what something happened there, or somebody's from there. Yeah, see, I think it was um, when I was reading this, which I came up, and I thought, right, okay, there's a a backstory here. But the only thing I could find was Wyatt Earp came from there. All right, was, okay. Uh, this sort of American lawman and gambler, uh, a big famous one back in the American West. Um, he worked there, but he worked in these other places that are pretty cool, Dodge City. Deadwood, which is where Deadwood is set, and yeah. Tombstone, which is obviously where the film Tombstone um, was set. Uh, his, his wife, <laughs> imagine this was your wife's job. Uh, you move to a new place and she just opens a brothel. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> uh, and he also, uh, while Erp took took part in the, the gun battle at the OK Corral, heard of that? I have heard of it, yes. I have. Yeah, so he this Wyatt Earp guy was from Wichita and he took took part in all that sort of shit. So that's what that's why that rang a bell, basically. This guy starts life well I'll let you take this one, man, like Yeah, so listen, he's a serial killer, right? So this next sentence or two maybe won't come as a surprise to anybody. Um according to several reports, including his own confessions, as a child he tortured animals. Uh, which is one of the warning signs in the McDonald triad. Uh, he also harboured a sexual fetish for women's underwear, and he would later steal panties from his victims and wear them himself. Um, he would also steal the pants, Jack, 
and hide them in various hidey holes. Yeah, that's what he called them. Like he he would have this sort of disconnection. Like it, like I think psychologists have said that he would call he would give nicknames to things like hidey holes, very childish. He would also call his uh, rage not X Factor Factor X. So when Factor X took over him, that that was it. It was like a way of disengaging himself with reality, basically. Yeah, I think he called these victims victim victims as well. Yes, so stuff like that. Like he was a proper weirdo, so he ripping about in panties, basically. Went to university for a couple of years. I don't think he quite um, cut the mustard at uni and then went to the US Air Force and was stationed in Texas. Now, when I heard Air Force, right, I just thought to myself, that rings a bell, right? That rings a bell, Air Force. So I decided to look at like serial killers that have been involved in the military. Right. So fucking many of them, man. Really? Like, like proper, like top tier serial killers. You've got the son of Sam. Right. David Berkovich, he was there. Um, Gary Ridgway. Yeah. Who we've covered. We've got Jeffrey Dahmer was there as well. So that's that's the top top three. Uh, scrolling down, Dennis Nielsen, who we're going to cover and we will cover at some point. Uh, Dean Coral, not heard of him, to be fair. No. Uh, Timothy McVeigh, I have heard that yeah. name, but I'm not sure who he done. Andrei Chikolo, the I've not said that right, the Russian guy. Uh, 52 women he killed, um, which is pretty high. <laughs> Pretty high level. Pretty, pretty high, yeah. Uh, Randy Craft. <laughs> <laughs> he was a freeway killer, man. He killed all right. sorts of old 16. It's just uh, funny. The name Randy's and never not funny. Arthur Shawcross. Must have heard that name. Yes, uh, uh, All these guys were in the fucking... Basically in the army. Uh, do, you think, do, do you think that's because, like... They've been identified as oddballs, and maybe with their families or their fathers, maybe are like, get yourself in the military. That will kind of iron you out. That will sort you out, basically. I don't know. I, don't, I, I just, maybe it was a case of like, if you didn't fit into, you couldn't go to uni or college, like the military sort of took anybody. Like, if you had four limbs and a head, you could get into the army, basically. Yeah, but like, even though I, I get that, but the US Air Force, you've got to imagine, is a little bit harder to get into than just becoming a foot soldier, basically, because that's well, top not, gun and shit, not, isn't it? But but not at entry level. Like, surely oh, at entry level, you walk in and you need to get trained up before you can fly. It's not like you walk in and go like, ah, keys that plane. Here's the keys. Right. Yeah. Well, listen, my experience all comes from Top Gun. So... Um, <laughs> I, I don't know, but he was he was stationed all over the place, not just Texas, wasn't he? No, I was uh, Texas, Alabama, uh, Okawina, South Korea, Greece, and Turkey. So yeah, he was sort of getting bandied about everywhere. He eventually came back to the United States, moved to a place called Park City, which is just north of um, which Wichita, and he ended up working for. He's one of these guys that had like lots of different jobs because I don't think he held down jobs for long basically and this is another one that, that seems to pop up quite a lot he worked in a meat department <laughs> oh, why is that so common just chopping up meat just chopping oh, up meat uh, blood uh, worked for a local supermarket uh, he, worked, he worked in the, sugar, the supermarket with his mum yeah, she was a bookkeeper or something for the stop, wasn't she? Yeah, she was, yeah. So, I'm uh, <laughs> going to work every day in your man's man. <laughs> That'd be horrendous. Absolutely be horrendous. 
Um, he attended a place called Butler County Community College in El Dorado, and he earned an associate's degree in electronics in 1973. Uh, he enrolled in the State University that same fall, and he graduated from there in 1979 with a bachelor's degree in administration of justice. He married a lady called Paula Dietz on May the 22nd, 1971, and they had one son and one daughter, Jack. So it looks like the military actually did sort of sort him out. It made him stick through some things. He's done well at college. He's done well at university. He's got himself married. He's got a couple of kids. And for a, for a short while, he was doing okay. Yeah, see, I think another thing maybe with the military would be you are a, a little bit off the rails. Your family maybe think you're a little bit weird. Military will sort you out, get you a bit of routine in your life. And it does seem to have worked for a few of these guys for a wee while anyway. You can back, you get married. Uh, he also worked for uh, Coleman Company, basically, which was camp, camping gear. Um, Two of his early victims actually worked for them as well. He worked for a short time in a place called Cicina in 1973 uh, before being fired. Again, I, I think he was like, he didn't turn up for work a lot. I think that was one of his things. Right. Um, he wasn't murdering people all the time, but he just hated work, I think. Um, we've all been there. We've all been there. This is quite ironic. Um, he worked for a, a security services company called ADT, and they basically sold and installed alarm systems for commercial businesses during his years there. So not only did he learn how to sort of defeat home security systems, but the irony being that business business for ADT went up because of him, because he was a murderer that was ripping about and everyone yeah, from ADT going, please, I need, a, I need a home security system. And then Dennis Rayler came around and fitted it for them. I think they're actually like they're the they're the biggest home alarm commercial they're alarm. Ma- they're still massive in America. Yeah, yeah they're yeah, huge. Yeah. So yeah. learning learning their stuff would be a good skill to have for it would him. Be a good skill to have, yeah. Yeah, he was also a census field operations supervisor for the Wichita area in 1989, prior to the 1990 federal census. Just on that, I keep getting letters in about a census, and I've just patched every one of them, Jack, because it looks like a lot of effort doing that census form. Yeah, I'm not interested in it. It's a yeah. legal requirement, supposedly. I no. just say, oh, fuck knows it's get, <laughs> they've been getting put in the bin, man. Yeah, I legally put mine in the bin. <laughs> oh, exactly. Um, in 1991, so uh, 30 years ago now, he worked for the compliance department at Park City. Uh, there was only two employees, basically, but they were a multifunctional department, and in inverted commas, there's only two of them, in charge of animal control, housing problems, zoning, general permit enforcement, and a, vi- a variety of nuisance cases. But in this position, he got a little bit cocky, a little bit big for his boots, uh, and a lot of the neighbours called him overzealous, basically, and extremely strict. And one neighbour actually complained that he just uh, murdered a dog for no reason, just euthanised her dog. Yeah, which, again, this was way after. Like, I don't know if this was to, like, quell his hunger for murder, because this was in 2005, so he's, he's already murdered 10 people. I wonder if he just thought to himself, I need to, I need to kill something. So I may as well kill that dog. Well kill a dog. Yeah. Bastard. Um, after he after he killed the dog, though, Jack, he um, he, got, he ended up getting his 
his council working terminated because, like you said earlier, he failed to report to work, didn't phone in, just disappeared. Uh, just disappeared, now. Yeah, turns out he'd actually been arrested for murder, though, five days earlier, yeah. and that's why he didn't turn <laughs> in. So it's not, it's not a bad excuse. <laughs> Um, he also served he served time on the Sedgwick County Board of Zoning Appeals and the Animal Control Advisory Board. He was appointed in 1996, resigned in 1998. Um, here we go. He was also a member of the Christ Lutheran Church, um, a congregation of about 200 people when he was former high school. He'd been a member of that for about 30 years and he was elected president of the Congregation Council. He was a Cub Scout leader. Of course he was. Like I don't yeah. know. That seems to ring a bell as well as if quite a lot of people were right into Cub Scouting. Um, his son became an Eagle Scout on July the 27th, 2005, after his arrest. The Segwick County, Segwick County District Judge Eric Yost waived the usual 60-day waiting period and granted an immediate divorce for his wife from him, agreeing that her mental health was in danger of being married to him. He did not contest the divorce and his 33-year marriage was ended. Uh, Paula Radier said in her marriage, in her divorce petition, that her mental and physical condition had been adversely affected by being married to him. Yeah, I went on to this um, Lutheran Church website because like, I was thinking like this would be like a massive like worldwide religion, but it seems to all be focused in... Like round about that area. Oh, really? It's like sure. a wee, not, not quite a cult, but like if you're a, I think it was Zion Lutheran, I think he joined. Anyway, there's only about three or four churches in the whole area that do it, and he, he was sort of part of that, and they do do um, weekly YouTube live streams, if you oh, want to go God, and take a God. wee look. I'd, I would rather shit my hands and clap. That's it, that's it. So, uh, we're going to speak about his victims here before we sort of get into um, the other stuff. So, he, he was lucky that he never got caught for his first crime because it was a very like high-risk crime because he basically walked into a family house and it was, uh, it was the Otero family, uh, mother, father and two children, basically, and they had a dog. And he walked in, he basically walked in with a gun and this was his, one of his mo things was he was walking say get down I'm, I, w- I won't hurt you i'm going to rob you and then tie them up and murder them basically so that's okay. what he done here but he walked into this family's house he said to i think it was joseph otero was the dad look it, you, you basically made him tie up his wings whatever you tie them up there i'll tie you up here take your dog out the back tie your dog up and then just sort of murder them all and left and this was during the day it was like 10 in the morning Jesus it was like a nighttime crime. It was just like so yeah. high risk that he was really lucky and inverted commas that he never get caught for his first one. And that kind of, I think, that maybe drilled down into his arrogance. Arrogance, basically, mate. Yeah, yeah. He, I can get away with this. Look how good I am. And he never killed like families again. But we'll go through the rest of the victims. Yeah, just before we do that, I want to give a big shout out to that first victim, Joseph Otero Jack, because he is a man that loves his name, right? He saw he called his son Joseph Otero the second, and he called his daughter Josephine. <laughs> so uh, I and love George that. Foreman, man. Yeah, George Foreman. He's eleven Georges, isn't it? Um, he moved on from that. So this obviously happened in the January of seventy four. In the April of seventy four, he murdered a woman called Catherine Bright. He also shot her brother Kevin twice, but he survived it. Yeah, um, so he took him into the he took him into the bedroom. He said, "Tie yourself up." 
and then I'm going to deal with your sister. I went through, shot her, no, shot him first, sorry. Then went through and murdered his sister and then came back and shot him again. But he didn't check he was dead. Right, okay. And again, this, like, he, he never wore a ballyclaver or a hood or anything like that. So th- there was a description of BTK from as early as 1974 and they still never caught him. Jesus Christ, it took 2005 to get him. Mm. Um, he didn't do a, a, bit, a bit of a break for the old killing for three years. Picked it up again in March the 17th, 1977. Uh, killed a woman called Shirley Vian. I don't know much about that killing. Um, um, December the 8th, 1977, he murdered Nancy Fox. Then he had a good break, yeah, seven or eight years. Yeah, he didn't do anything until April the 27th, 1985, when he murdered Maureen Hedge. Now, it's interesting, Jack, because... Normally, we'd be saying here, there's no way about that length of time. You just, you just don't know the victims. But this guy was a guy that bragged about it, so you do know the victims with this guy. He legit did have a big break. No, he had a massive break, yeah. And what he used to do with these victims was, he, like, this makes it even creepier, was he would, he would pick them, like, well in advance, stalk them, find out where they live, find out their, their daily patterns, what they've done, break into their house prior, and wait for them coming back. Dear. <clears throat> His uh, final two killings happened on September the 16th, 1986, Vicky Wegerl, and in January the 19th, 1991, Dolores Davis. Yeah, um, so like, like, he was like, again, very um, on on character for a serial killer. He would, he would steal things, basically panties, and then just wear them about like a, not only a proper weirdo, but a murderer. He would do that, but there was this woman, very, very lucky, um, Anna Williams, who was a 63-year-old woman. So it, it kind of, he started to be a family and then sort of picked on just women in general, basically. But he broke into her house and she got held up and he got bored, basically. Like He was like, oh, for fuck's sake, she's taking ages to come back. So what he done was he, he stole a scarf, left... She survived, and then he posted a letter to her, like a week or two later, with a scarf saying, "Like lucky you weren't in." Basically, Jesus Christ! Yeah, that's amazing. Um, apparently, he got quite obsessed with that woman, didn't he? Um, he was like furious that she did she evaded him and he didn't get to kill her, and that was kind of built up to that just nastiness of sending the scarf and probably frightening the woman to death. Sixty three years old. Yeah, basically, man. Basically, he stalked an awful couple of women in the eighties, yet sort of early mid-90s, um, and they, again, this is something that sort of pops up where the police know about these people because they filed restraining orders against them. One of them had to move away. But they never sort of dig deeper. It seems to be like just, like, you know, all these people have been murdered and yeah, they're and a guy stalking women. Like, take his DNA because one thing that he did do, uh, the family murder, he left spunk on the floor. But he okay. didn't sex. He didn't sexually assault anybody. He must have just had a, a quick chug, and there was spunk all the flare. So they had DNA, and then just never took this guy's DNA. Like you're a stalker, man. That that would be the first thing you would do. I think like give your DNA. We'll check it against these previous files. But they they never done that, and well, we kept murdering. So again, I, I kind of think that's on the police, the police force. Yeah, um, the police force did save a life though, because um, during his interrogation, he did admit that he was planning to kill again. He'd set a date of October 2004, and he was already stalking his intended victim at the time of his arrest. 
Yeah, I'm not sure how long he stopped him for, but like I say, he's like just picking a woman at random, basically, and just following him about. And maybe that's why he never went to work, because he was stalking people or whatever, you know. Too busy stalking to go to work. 2004, so not that long ago, the investigation had pretty much sort of gone cold. And this is when uh, Dennis got a little bit pissed off. And he's like, because he wanted infamy, basically. So he sent an R letter to the police claiming responsibility for a killing that had previously not been attributed to him. I think that was his second victim. Basically, in DNA collected from under the fingernails of that victim provided police with uh, previously unknown evidence. They then, again, another thing that they seem to do is just randomly DNA everybody, and there was 1,100 DNA samples taken from guys round about there, but just uh, not the stalker with restraining orders. That would be too obvious. I can't that fucking, like, what's your time? I read, um, it's about the same size as Glasgow, right? Okay. So, how many stalkers do you think there are, there are on file in Glasgow? A thousand, maybe? Like, let's say a thousand. That's the first a thousand you go to? <laughs> yeah, See, that's where you start. Like, yeah. That's where you start, but they, they don't seem to, they don't seem to have done that, man, so. Um, basically, the police corresponded with him. They, they wanted to try and gain his confidence, so they, they got back to him in terms of his letters. Um, and one of the communications with the police, Raider asked him if it was possible to trace information from floppy disks. The police department replied that there was no way of knowing what computer such a disk had been used on, when in fact such ways did exist. Raider then sent his messages and the floppy to the police department, which quickly checked the metadata of the Microsoft Word document in the metadata. They found that the document had been made by a man who called himself Dennis. They also found a link to the church. The police searched on the internet for the Lutheran church um, and the, the name of the place and his name. They found his family name. And they were finally able to identify a suspect, Dennis Raider, a Lutheran deacon. The police also knew that he owned a black Jeep Cherokee. And when they drove past the suspect's house, they noticed a black Jeep Cherokee parked outside. Yeah, so, so they're, they're on to him here, Jack. They're on to him, yeah. A lot of sort of, at this point, circumstantial evidence, really. They needed more direct evidence. And I think this is one of the first sort of um, DNA cases where they didn't get DNA from him. Um, they got a DNA from a pap smear from his daughter. Um, she had to do one for, I don't know if she was a student or she was working at the medical clinic, but they took a pap smear. They DNA'd that, noticed that he was a her dad, basically, through DNA, and that was enough for them to eventually arrest him uh, in 2005, I think. Yeah, it was February the 25th, 2005. He was detained in his home in Park City and he was accused of the BTK killings. At a press conference the next morning, Wichita Police Chief, a guy called Norman Williams, announced in Stone Cold Steve Austin style, the bottom line is <laughs> BTK is arrested. Um, Raider pleaded guilty to all the murders on June the 27th, 2005, even given graphic accounts of them in court. Yeah, there's a 45-minute video that I didn't watch. I didn't have time to watch it of his... A court confession, because uh, you know in America they can take cameras in. Yes, they can. Yeah, so there's a, like his full confession basically is there. 2015, August, we're still here, uh, 10 life sentences he got, uh, one per murder victim basically, it included nine life sentences that each had the possibility of parole after 15 years. Uh, meant that in total, he would be eligible for parole after just uh, 175 years. Uh, basically, quite rightly, <laughs> he spent 
the rest of his life in prison. He was um, ineligible for the death penalty because Kansas doesn't have one, basically. Um, they did reinstate it in 1994, um, but during the period of his crime, it wasn't a death penalty, so they seem to have got rid of it and then brought it back in. Yeah, but crime, it? yeah, it seems like seems like once you get rid of it, it would you wouldn't get it back. But I don't know what happened in Kansas in nineteen ninety four. I remember when you looked that up. Why they thought right, we need to bring this back. There must there must be a right bad bastard on the list somewhere or something. Or was the know. was the Oklahoma? Was Oklahoma? Is that in Kansas? No, it's Oklahoma's Oklahoma's a state on its own. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, I'm racking my mind, and all I can think of is uh, the evil witch that Dorothy landed her house on. <laughs> so, I don't I think it was that. Um, so we've got some more information now about the kind of letters and the stuff that he was sending, because um, obviously he was known for sending those taunting letters to the police and to newspapers. There were several communications sent from him from 74 to 79. Uh, the first was a letter that was stashed in an engineering book in the Wichita Public Library in October 74 that described in details the killing of the Ottera family in January of that year. So it's this, that's a bit freaky as well, isn't it? He's not actually sent that one to somebody. He's left it there for someone to find. But it seems like he's, he's playing some sort of t- like TV movie serial killer. Like, oh, I'll put it inside a book in a library. But nobody found it, so he then had to tell people to go and look in that exact engineering book. Like, he sent another one to, like, he, he was in quite a lot of contact with a local television sta- uh, station, basically. Again, claiming responsibility for the murders. Uh, Shirley Van Nancy Fox identified a victim. So I think in that letter he said, I've killed eight people, whereas only seven had been counted and it was the second victim that was the um, unidentified one, basically. He suggested a number of possible names for himself, including one that stuck, uh, which was BTK. He demanded media attention in his second letter. Like, I think he wrote, uh, what does it take for me to, to get in the newspapers, basically? And it was finally announced that, which they did of a serial killer at large in a poem. He wrote a poem called, Oh, Death to Nancy, uh, which was a botched version of the lyrics of the American folk song, Oh, Death. So he's trying, again, he's just trying to be this... TV movie version of a serial killer. Yeah, he's he wants to be. He just wants to be the man. He wants books to be written about him, doesn't he? Yeah, um, doesn't. In nineteen seventy nine, he sent two identical packages: one to an intended victim who was not at home when he broke into her house, and the other to the news network, the TV station. These both featured another poem: "Oh Anna, why didn't you appear?" A drawing of what he'd intended to do to his victim, as well as some small victims he had pilfered from Williams's home. So this is again, this is the woman with the scarf. Apparently, he'd waited for several hours, like we said, inside her house, but she did not come home until later. Yeah, so in 1988, there was a another family murder, uh, the Fager family, and a letter was uh, was sent basically, but it wasn't it wasn't from BTK, like so. That was at a time when he sort of fell out of the limelight, and they kind of thought he's either dead, he's been arrested, or whatever, but. This letter appeared, and then he wrote another letter basically saying, oh, it was to me, oh, it was to me. <laughs> like, so then he knew he was alive again, basically. And it, we're jumping forward now to sort of 2004, but that, that just urged to be noticed as this guy's like the most famous for it, basically. Yeah, absolutely. He's, he's just 
unnecessary risks all the time, isn't it? Yeah. Um, in March of 2004, there was a series of 11 communications from Radar to the local media, and this is what led directly to his arrest in February 2005. The Wichita Eagle, uh, the newspaper, received a letter from someone using the return address, Bill Thompson Kilman, and the author of this Kilman. letter... Kilman. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the author of this letter claimed that he had murdered Vicky Wegerell on September the 16th, 1986, he enclosed photographs of the crime scene and a photocopy of her driver's license, which he'd stolen at the time of the crime. Prior to this, it had not been definitely established that she'd been killed by him. Uh, but obviously this brought that to light now for them. That's it, yeah. And again, just to be weird and creepy and fucking Sherlock Holmes-esque, uh, he sent a word puzzle um, to the television company, again containing graphic descriptions of the murders and a sketch labelled the sexual thrill <laughs> is my bill. Um, also enclosed was a chapter um, entitled The BTK Story, which mimicked a story written in 1999 by Court TV, which is now True TV, which I think is still going, basically. Yeah. Uh, a guy called David Law, um, like he says, uh, chapter one was entitled A Serial Killer is Born. Just trying to be so weird and creepy. Like, that's all he wanted, this guy, was this attention, narcissistic personality disorder was one of the things he got um, diagnosed with and it's, well, shines through, basically. In July of that year, a package was dropped into the return slot at the downtown public library containing more bizarre material, including the claim that he was responsible for the death of 19-year-old Jake Allen in Argonia, Kansas, earlier that month. This claim was found to be false and that death was ruled a suicide. That's it. He's sending more envelopes, weird shit, series of cards he sends that have got uh, pictures of, like, bondage of children. Like, this guy was never a paedophile, but, like, this is really shocking, so he sends that. Again, this cunt thinks he's some sort of fucking Rabbi Burns, writing poets, uh, threatening the life of, at the time, the lead investigator, uh, Ken Lerdwa. Uh, and a false autobiography containing many details about his life. Hello friends, Colin here. The looks, the charm and the brains behind Drunk Term Memory. Just wanted to pop in and interrupt your listening pleasure to let you know about our Patreon and some changes that we've made to it recently. We've now introduced a £1 tier where you get absolutely hee-haw other than the sense of achievement that could only come from supporting two great guys like myself and Jack. We've also reduced the price of the two top tiers uh, by a pound on each of them just because we appreciate life is a little bit shit just now and uh, if we can make things a little bit better for people then we will. So check us out at patreon.com forward slash wrong term memory and you'll be able to get early access to shows, ad free and lots of bonus content. Yeah, these data like it gets to a stage where like they just think like we better start releasing this this stuff in case like it sparks a memory in something go right I know Dennis that's him that's writing that so um it took them nearly fucking thirty years to get it out there but they started to release this stuff to the public eventually. He notched up the creepiness a level further in December of 2004, which the police received another package from him. This time it was found in Wichita Murdoch Park. It contained the driving licence of Nancy Fox, which had been stolen from the crime scene, as well as a doll that was bound at the hands and the feet and had a plastic bag tied over its head. Aye, because like, not only did 
was he a fan of uh, binding people, but the, the way he suffocated them it was a plastic bag. And I don't know, I think there might have been a survivor from the Otero family, actually, might have skipped over that. Uh, but he would suffocate them just enough until they're just about dead, then let them breathe again, and then suffocate them again. Jeez, like, man. let them live, and then kill them again, basically. Um, he attempted to leave a cereal box in a pickup truck, and uh, the driver just sort of flung it out, and it was later retrieved from the trash, and I had weird messages in it, and this is the very first time that I think they, they found CCTV, not of him, but of the, the black Jeep Cherokee, basically. And that's how they, they knew it was him. Um, in February of uh, 2005, more postcards were sent to the, to the TV network. Another cereal box left at a rural location, which contained another bound doll, apparently meant to symbolise the murder of 11-year-old Josephine Otero. Um, in his letters to the police, Raider asked if his writings, if put on a floppy disk, could be traced or not, like we said. Uh, the police answered this question via a newspaper ad posted in the Wichita Eagle, saying it would be okay to use the disk and um, that's that led on to him, Jack, uh, sending that floppy disk into the Fox TV station, uh, the local affiliate. Um, forensic analysis quickly determined that disk had been used in that church, like we said. They found the name Dennis on it, did some internet searches, took them to him, and he was arrested on February the 25th. I Basically, it was the metadata from a Word document that they used um, to find him. You know, metadata. Nobody really thinks about that. No, let me take a photo from your camera. Yeah. If you post that online, like, as that photo, people can really fucking drill down into all sorts of shit, you know? Like, uh, so yeah, metadata was even a thing back then. Right, we're going to read verbatim uh, a letter that he sent in 1978. So we're going to have to read this. That says verbatim, including the spelling and grammatical letters, right? So it might be quite difficult to read. Okay. Uh, I find the newspaper not writing about the poem on vain, unamusing. A little paragraph would have enough. I know it not the media fault. The police chief key keep things quiet and doesn't let public know they're a psycho running about loss, strangling mostly women. They are seven in the ground who will be next. How many do I have to kill before I get a name in the paper or some national attention? Do the cop think that all of these deaths are not related? Jolly gee, yes, the MO is different in each, but look, a pattern is developing. The victims are tie up, most have been women phone cut, bringing some bondage matter, sadist tendencies, no struggle. Outside the death spot, no witnesses except the Vane's kids. They were very lucky, a phone call saved them. I was going to tape the boys and put plastics bags over their head like I did Joseph and Shirley and then hang the girl. God, oh God, what a beautiful sexual relief that would have been. Josephine, when I hung her, really turned me on, her pleading for mercy. Then the rope took the hole she helpless, staring at me with wide terror-filled eyes, the rope getting tighter, tighter. You don't understand these things because you're not under the influence of factor X, which is what I was talking about earlier. Uh, the same thing has made the son of Sam, Jack the Ripper, Harvey Gleitman, Boston Strangler, Dr. H.H. Holmes, Pantyhose Strangler of Florida, 
Hillside Strangler, Ted of the West Coast, and many more infamous character kill. Which seems senseless, but we cannot help it. There is no help, no cure, except death or being caught and put away. It's a terrible nightmare, but you see, I don't lose any sleep over it. After a thing like Fox, I come home, I go about life like anyone else. And I'll be like that until the urge hits me again. It's not continuous and I don't have a lot of the time. It takes time to set out a kill, one mistake and it's all over. Since I about blew it on the phone, handwriting is out, letter guide is too long and typewriters can be traced too. My short poem of death and maybe a drawing, later on a real picture and maybe a tape of the sound will come your way. How will you know me? Before a murder or murders, you will receive a copy of the initials BTK. You keep the cat copy, the original will show up someday on Guess Who. May you not be the lucky one. Uh, postscript. How about some name for me? It's time, seven down and many more to go. I like the following. So this is when he wants to pick his nickname. How about you? The BTK Strangler. Wichita Strangler. Poetic Strangler. The Bond Age Strangler. Or Psycho, the Wichita Hangman. Or the Wichita Executioner. The Garot Phantom. Or the asphyxiator. This guy was really like, uh, and then he's signed at BTK at the end there. So just in case we're in any doubt, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like the, I was surprised, Jack. You know that obviously when I went to the military and he came back, he did college, did university, he passed. He held a couple of decent jobs. He's had some good positions in the church on various committees and stuff like that. His writing, his grammar, his words, his spelling is atrocious. <laughs> That's the thing, right? He was doing that on purpose. Right. Right. So there's lots of communication where like the the, the spelling, the grammar is randomly wrong. Right. So it's okay. not like he gets like Sheeran Shaw mixed up or uh went and gone. Like, it's not like that. He's randomly putting them in there because the police did receive stuff from him that was just perfectly like grammatically correct and everything it just seemed to be that he was trying to portray like he was an un- undereducated moron basically when he wasn't so they picked it up quite early went right this guy's mistakes are just randomly flung in there basically i see right okay that makes sense yeah so like we're not going to go into he's a he's arrest too much of that says he, he was arrested um and he was put in a fucking a cell for a long long time um Legal proceedings, again, don't particularly want to go into too much about that. Like I says, he's, uh, he never got the death sentence because of when his crimes were were perpetrated, basically. I want to speak a little bit about the further investigation and then sort of the evidence that sort of fucked him up, basically. Um, so police in Park City and several surrounding cities, cities were looking into unsolved cases during... 1974-1981 and eventually there's a little bit of cooperation this is always a thing that fucking annoys me as well the lack of communication and cooperation between state police and FBI but they eventually decided to focus down on this and his was a cold case at the time, they jumped on top of it and the FBI, air patrol and local uh, jurisdictions eventually decided to team up together so why did it take that long man, it's just from a like a British point of view, do you think the the po- the police speak to who is there here? MI five, MI five. What, what they got yeah, to do with it? But 
But how many? There's like one police service, but like if you do a murder in Stoke and then move to Glasgow and do a murder, there's probably not much communication between them as well. Probably not as much as you would think, yeah. Um, as to why they suddenly did start communicating and suddenly got serious about doing something, the sceptical piece of me wants to say it's probably getting close to election time and uh, they right, wanted okay. to clean up the streets and it became a bit of a combined effort uh, because, as you know, in America, a lot of these different police police positions and other important, they're all elected, aren't they? So it's a case of maybe trying to do that for that reason rather than suddenly becoming a really competent police force. Well, that's it. He did try to make a bit of money after it, man. Uh, after his arrest, he, he wanted to deliver his notoriety, basically, and make a little bit of profit, but... Um, they weren't having much of it. Uh, 2005, uh, this controversy erupted on CNN, big American uh, TV station, Nancy Grace. Have you ever heard of her? I haven't heard of Nancy Grace, no. Uh, yeah, rings a bell anyway. Um, there was a poem that he'd written, and it was passed on to someone, and then it sold in an auction site that specialises in serial killer memorabilia. Do you know the address for that site? I'd <laughs> like have you wonder how you look at it. Um, I was going to say Murderpedia, but I think that is like we'll find it. Is like a Wikipedia for uh, murders, basically. And this poem was called Black Friday, uh, an ode to the day that he was arrested. And the poem expressed readers' unhappiness about being caught <laughs> with one of the verses proclaiming, the dark side of me has been exposed. He was really pissed off that the police liked him about the floppy disk thing. Like he took that as a personal insult, as if like, <laughs> what, what would you mean? You, you can trace floppy disks like as if they would tell me the truth anyway. Yes, yeah, this is a guy with a green electronics, remember? Um, <laughs> on October the 12th of 2005, Dateline NBC, uh, which I am aware of, they aired the confession massive. of yeah. BTK. Uh, Massachusetts psychologist Robert Mendoza was hired by uh, Raiders Court appointed public defenders to conduct an interview after he pleaded guilty on June the 27th. NBC claimed that Raider knew the interview might be on TV, but that was a false statement, according to the Senate County Sheriff's Department. Raider mentioned the interview during his sentencing statement. I've heard of that guy, Robert Mendoza. He must be like the sort of... I've heard the name as well. I don't know where from. Yeah, you must... read this bit, I'll Google it. Yeah, it must be like the, the TV psychologist guy. Anyway, on October uh, 25th, 2005, the Kansas Attorney General basically filed a petition to sue Mendoza and Tally Waters, who was co-owners of the Cambridge Forensic Consultants for breach of contract, claiming they were intended to benefit financially from the use of information obtained um, from the involvement in Raiders' defence. In 2017, Mendoza settled the case for $30,000 with no admission of wrongdoing, basically. So, it's just that thing, like, these people, like, do you feel for these journalists that want to bring these people's stories to life and then suddenly there's a twist and there's a sting in the tail and then suddenly they're getting sued? Like, how can, how can like, it's like a serial killer Soon somebody's mad. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely crazy. Um, it's just America though, isn't it? You can sue MD for anything. We, we just spoke on another podcast we did recently that Prince tried to sue Adobe once because people were photoshopping pictures of him. <laughs> so that, that is that is America. Um, Robert Mendoza, um, I'm pretty sure, isn't the guy you're thinking of because Robert Mendoza is a famous violinist. 
Um, played the violin on Despacito and uh, a couple of other songs recently. Quite a good looking guy, actually. <laughs> <laughs> With his big, sexy fucking moustache. Uh, right. Uh, it. No, it wasn't him I was thinking about. I've heard, maybe that's where I've heard the name. But uh, So that's Dennis Raider, basically, BTK. Uh, again, missed a lot of shit out, missed a lot of the um, gruesome details about his crimes. And like I say, the victims do get forgot. But that's just the nature of true crime podcasting is that you don't, um, it's not that you don't care. You know what I mean when I say that. It's yeah, not, yeah, it's, it's not about them. It's about the fucking cunt that's writing letters and tying up little dolls and sending them to the police. That's more interesting. Absolutely, um, but that was good. I enjoyed that, Jack. Like I said, it's one I didn't know a lot about until I read through your research and stuff. But it was an interesting one because he was just he, like all these ones that are more interesting than others. It's because they do something a little bit different, or they're. Their, their MO is different or something, some of their behaviour is different. And yeah. this guy certainly hits that, ticks those boxes for sure. So thank you for putting that together. Right, it does indeed. Right, uh, we'll be back with you next week again. Uh, get in contact on Twitter or whatever, at Wrong Term Memory. If you want to send us any sort of ideas, anything you see that's funny that we might be able to read out, then just give us a shout. But uh, cheers, Colin. Cheers, mate. Hey, right, guys, sweet evening. Bye. Bye.